Welcome to Up Next. I'm Gabrielle Boucher, millennial author and entrepreneur. Each week, I bring to you next generation leaders and millennial game changers to inspire you to change your world. Let's see what's next. Welcome back up nexters. This is Gabrielle again. And this week we have an incredible opportunity to not only hear from one incredible guest, but this week I've decided to actually double up and we are hearing from two guests. Our first guest is Josh Charles, who has been on the show before. He's a contributor at the stream. He's also the best-selling author of multiple books, including Liberty Secrets, The Lost Wisdom of America's Founders. And sitting with me here in studio is my husband, Brian Boucher, who is also a best-selling author of a politics book and an entrepreneur as well. So thank you both for joining me in this week's Up Next. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So this idea of a podcast really came from a conversation that Brian and Josh and I were having. And the three of us are friends. We banter back and forth probably more than we should, uh, really about what millennial Christians should be thinking about the election. I said, wait, hold on. How about we all get together and put this on the podcast as we're talking through what we as each of us are millennials, we're 27, 28 years old, and people of faith, and how are we thinking through this presidential election? My first question is for you, Josh, being the historian that you are, what do you think that our founders would be thinking about our current election cycle? I think they would see it as an indictment of where American culture is. Uh, I think the fact that these are our only two viable choices, by viable meaning it will be one one of them, either Trump or Clinton, I think the fact that those are the only two viable choices is, is an indictment. It shows we have um, – We've dropped the ball in a few areas. That doesn't mean it can't be picked up again. But uh, but there's no doubt that uh, this means that American culture is not in a healthy place. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to absolutely agree with you on that one. Brian, what do you think uh, coming into this next election? I know you and I have talked a lot about uh, the candidates, where we're at, what the future looks like. Have you projected uh, any sort of future for either of these candidates? Is this surprising to you that we have a Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump matchup? It's certainly surprising, I think, not just for me, but for the rest of the American public. And I would tend to agree with Josh to say, yeah, it's definitely an indictment on uh, on the American culture and where we are right now. But in terms of predictions, I don't think I, – I, I had a feeling if Trump decided to step into the race that Trump would at very minimum win the nomination. I do think he'll become president of the United States for a number of factors. Uh, but along with what Josh was saying, I think – this this we're at a very interesting place in America, and it will be one of these two candidates. But at the same time, um, this this isn't just an indictment against America and American culture. This is an indictment against the system, and I think that this is an election that has certainly garnered a lot of an, a lot of attention. And I think that's been a great thing because. Americans are paying attention, and it is an opportunity to go one way or the other. One is a positive direction towards vision, and one is away from vision. And I think that if anything lacks in America today, it is certainly historical perspective, but it is also vision. 
But not only that, though, I think particularly as a millennial and a Christian, we see many in our own generation really struggling to get behind a particular candidate at this point. More and more young people that we meet, our colleagues, our peers, our friends are saying, I'm just going to stay home, which is not only ironic, uh, but very frustrating as well, because this is the first election ever where millennials rival baby boomers in our size. We thought 2008 was the big election that we put our fingerprint on American politics, but in fact, it's now 2016 that we have the majority, although surveys show that we actually have a less a less likely scenario that millennials are going to show up because we have a low trust level in the political process as it is. Josh, for you as a millennial Christian and self-described conservative, what has that mental process looked like for you? Was there ever a point where you thought, I'm just not going to vote on November 8th? No, no, I've always been intent on voting. There is, you know, on, on a tax form, there's an ability to give extra beyond what you owe. And on a voting form, there's an ability to write in somebody. So at the very least, I don't think people should not vote. Um, going back to what Brian said, just very briefly, I agree that we are starving for vision, and we know what Proverbs says about that, of where there's no vision, the people perish. Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that, that, the, that the, the breakdown is so, uh, so much of a dichotomy between a positive and a negative vision. Um, I, I, I think Trump's is slightly more positive, uh, but I think that's part of the issue that many millennials, especially Christian millennials, are having. That I, I, I don't think I don't think on its own you can call it a positive vision. I think maybe in relation to Hillary Clinton's vision, certainly, uh, but on its own, I, I don't think it has. I don't think it stands on its own two feet as far as being called a positive vision. Um, so as far as how I'm thinking about it, you know, I think it's very important to have grace with people. And in the context of this conversation, this is what I mean. There are a lot of people I know I'm, I'm friends with and, and uh, consider myself uh, a mentee of Dennis Prager. He's one of my absolute favorite commentators, brilliant guy. He's very gracious, very humble. Uh, and he's voting for Trump. And as he, he likes to say, he was his 17th of 17 candidates in terms of his favorites. Uh, but he's voting for him because, as he says, I have no choice. And I, I find the logic, I, I'm not quite compelled by it yet, but I do find it very understandable, the lesser of two evils principle. And in a fallen world where things are hardly perfect and usually you're having to decide between uh, worse and worst um, or some combination thereof, I, I, don't, I think the principle of the lesser two evils is actually a very valid moral principle. So there are many people who are voting for Trump who are doing it out of a genuine struggle. They have many issues with him. They have many issues with his character. They have many issues with uh, some of the things he has said over the last year or so. Um, and so, and I know that there are many on the left who feel like in a similar position for Clinton. And so I think when we're approaching our fellow citizens about this, I think more this election year than any I've seen, uh, there's a tendency to demonize people who are coming down on a different side than we are. I've heard a lot of never Trump people totally demonize people who are voting for Trump, and of course, people who are voting for Trump totally demonizing never Trump. I recognize there's a genuine moral dilemma 
And yes, there are certainly simple-minded, idiotic people on both sides of that dilemma, there's no doubt. But I think most people are actually struggling through this quite a bit. And even if I come down on a different side of the argument, I actually respect that struggle and and I don't impute uh, bad motives to them. So I think that's very important. So would you say that there are deplorables on both sides of the issue? Oh, yeah. But, you know, 11, 12 percent of Americans think Elvis is still alive. So that that shows at least 11 and 12 percent of the American population at any given time is insane. So <laughs> so I would not be surprised <laughs> You know, if that if the party breakdown of those insane people is roughly equal and, you know, yeah, there's always deplorables, I guess. <laughs> I thought Hillary Clinton's comment was very revealing. Yeah. Uh, I think it will go down very much like Mitt Romney's 47 percent comment. And, you know, the truth is, I think there's a grain of truth in both of their comments, ironically. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I appreciate you coming out with with the clarity that you have that, you know, saying yes, the lesser of two evils is actually a large logical argument I can get behind. It, I don't know how many people have told me, yeah, you know, it's like the lesser of two evils, you know, I, I can't decide. And I just think it's very interesting that someone would say that because it's like, of course, it's the lesser of two evils. Jesus is never on the ballot. It's always going to be two morally corrupt, fallen human beings who are doing what they believe is right. And uh, it really just depends on how you think through it. But in that same vein, I actually think this election cycle has been very good for the American voter, especially for the American Christian voter, because we're having to think through, why am I voting for this person? And can I can I step beside them or behind them? Or can I have a conversation and move them further down the field rather than just saying they have an R behind their name or they have a D behind their name. Therefore, I am for him or I am for her. I think it's really been pressing a lot of the critical thinking muscles in many Christians, unfortunately. Well, I'll let it go back to Brian. I don't want to monopolize it. I actually, I think it's, I think it's been good in that sense for people like us. I actually think a lot of people have fallen for the blind partisanship uh, just as much as any other election, actually. Um, but yes, there is a there is a strain of people. And I think millennials are actually pretty representative of this, who actually are having to really struggle through this choice. And, and you know, I'd rather them struggle than not. Struggle is better than atrophy. Yeah, and I, I, think, that, I think that's an interesting point. I'm going to push it over to Brian for your rebuttal for what? What Josh was saying. My rebuttal, I, huh? I, I can see him it's, just kind of moving in his chair, and he's like, "I let me go. This is interesting. <laughs> so, so you think that that partisanship has just as much taken over this political election period than any of those that have come before. I find that kind of interesting. I mean, we look at millennials, for example, and most of them, if not a majority of millennials, uh, will not ascribe themselves to a particular party label or to a particular party. And so I have kind of a two-pronged question. Do you truly think it's partisanship that has won the day here or do you think it is more so this struggle that you're talking about where for the first time in a long time uh, on the conservative side and maybe even the on the liberal side when it was between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, people were starting to think a bit more deeply than Republican versus Democrat. I mean it just just in the matchup between Hillary Clinton, kind of Wall Street versus anti-Wall Street. And then on the conservative side, you had the establishment side of the party versus the bucking the establishment and bringing somebody into the town that's never had any lick of political experience. I mean do you really think that it is partisanship that dictates this or do you think it's more so – 
a, a good kind of inner struggle in the midst of people and in the midst of the parties? Well, I need to clarify what I mean by partisanship. By partisanship, I simply mean the labels people will take. And so I think for people who have been Republicans or voted Republicans, uh, voted Republican for most of their life, uh, they're going to continue to do so. Um, I think that shows up in the polling data pretty clearly. Uh, but as far as what you're not George, not George H. W. Bush though. Well, George H. W. Bush is uh, he's for Hillary. He's he's he is with Hillary. I I very much respect George H. W. Bush. Me too. In many ways. Um, I I don't I I in good conscience I can't see how a Republican or a conservative, uh, which he is not. There's no doubt, but could vote for Hillary Clinton. But but um, but no, I, I do think there's been a genuine struggle, and I do think there's a breakdown of the typical dichotomy between Republican and Democrat. There's no doubt. But I, I'm just simply saying that, uh, lest we kid ourselves, that, that the the partisan structure remains overall very much intact. And you see Republicans lining up behind Republicans and, and Democrats lining up behind Democrats. I do think Republicans are more energized right now. I think you also see that in the polling data. But I also think people are lining up mostly to prevent the other from winning. And, you know, you were talking about a positive vision with Trump. Maybe this will be my chance to ask you a quick question. Um, Gabrielle, you can uh, you can wait for some. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Thanks, uh, um, You know, if you I, – I take issue with your description of Trump's vision as positive. Uh, I think there are aspects of it that are, but I, I certainly – that wouldn't be the first word that would come to mind to describe it if I had to choose a few. It might be three, four, five down the line, but certainly not the first one. So what would you say is the first one then? Oh, man. I don't know. That, that I'll get caught in the game between describing it as it is and, and describing it as, uh, as I think a lot of what the supporters are looking for. I, I, think, um, I think Trump is the – you know, this is hardly insightful of me to say this, but I think he's the fed up candidate if I could come up with a – a phrase, and you know, looking at some of the recent events in Charlotte and whatnot, uh, and a lot of the racial animosities that have been, uh, you know, stirring the pot lately, I think I'm I'm not there, but I can understand, I can empathize with why people might go toward Trump because now I think he's a liar. Uh, he's not been honest about his record. He's not been honest about his opinions. But, you know, if you don't do your research and you just kind of take him at his so-called word with what he's saying, he comes off as the, quote, honest and the tell-it-like-it-is candidate. And so in an environment like this where we – it's been striking to me just how much utter nonsense there's been permeate American life just in the last year alone with – you know, I consider it in the transgender area, the, the sexual arena, the racial arena. Um, and unfortunately, in all those areas, there's serious conversations to be had. Uh, with reasonable people, and and but because of a lot of nonsense, political correctness, um, which the right has plenty of, by the way, um, I think people are wanting a candidate that seems to be sane, um, which ironically I don't think Trump is. But again, if you don't do your research on Trump, he comes off as common sense, tell it like it is, you know, Joe Schmo American, and I think I think that's what people are wanting. Well, I would say that the that also falls on the other side for a Hillary Clinton candidate as well that if you don't understand policies if you don't understand 
past experience and if you don't understand who people are on both sides it's very easy just totally. just to fall in line but but it's very true that 2016 is indeed a protest election where it really just could come down to how much people dislike the other candidate i think it's interesting that the democratic party supposedly the party of the people has had a much more controlled process for who their candidate is and the Republican Party, supposedly the party of the elites and whatnot, which it certainly has been in some ways, has gotten the total outlier, the total, uh, you know, uh, Manchurian candidate. <laughs> well, that's is that's it, interesting. I actually appreciate I appreciate that analysis. Brian, do you want to respond it, to Josh? Is it better to say that it was a controlled process or a manipulated process on the Democratic side as to how Hillary Clinton became the nominee? Uh, manipulated <laughs> might be a better word, but probably probably manipulated. That'd probably be a better way. That'd probably be a way to say it. Actually, I had a question for you in the in the midst of of your last response. You were talking about how uh, Trump is really. The fed up, the fed up candidate. And if you take a look at our economy, you take a look at our, our our foreign relations, you take a look at our culture, whether it's Charlotte or Ferguson, or anything that's going on in American culture right now, is it okay to be fed up? Yes, it is. But I think it's you know the the question of what to do with that is an entirely different question. Uh, there are a lot of people who have. Uh, I'm not looking to say conclusively one way or the other whether it's it's justified or not. But there are a lot of people who have very strong feelings about the current relationship between the black community and cops in many, many areas. Um, and there are some people who do positive things with that. And, you know, that guy who does the free hug movement guy, I think he's great. I, I think he and I would probably not agree on everything with this issue, but I think what he's doing is wonderful. Yep, I agree. Um, but and then there's guys, there's a lot, I would say a lot more, or at least they get a lot more media coverage, which I'm not sure is an accident, um, who deal with their their uh, fed upness in a very destructive, both to themselves and others way. And so, yeah, being fed up is one thing. What you do with it is entirely another. I, I tend to agree with you on what to do with it next, right? Because the way I look at it, it's okay to be fed up. And I don't mean physically. I don't mean looting. I don't mean tearing apart sure. the country. But in an intellectual sense or just a human sense, it's okay to be fed up and upset about the position of our country abroad and here at home. Yeah. And I agree with you because the question is, where do you pivot from the fed up? Do you pivot from outward actions uh, to outward actions of anger or do you seek to call the nation to higher ground? And I think it's the second one. Can you channel the, the anger that is in some ways justified, at least in the intellectual sense, not the physical sense, and can you justify it and use it as kind of a fuel behind a strong – Uniting, vi uniting vision behind good principles abroad and here at home. I think it certainly can. I'm not sure if this election does that. I think this election has been far too often about very small things. But I think people need to realize, I think the defining characteristic of American life in the political realm, and you both know this has been one of my major criticisms of the conservative movement, is an incessant short-sightedness. Uh, I tell this, it's not my story, it's God's story, but the story in the Bible about Jesus saying to the, the apostles while they were disciples at that point, you are reaping what you did not sow. And he's referring, of course, to the patriarchs, to King David, Solomon, the prophets, etc. And all those guys did what they did, you know, thousands of years before Jesus arrived on the scene. And yet they did it with that hopeful expectation that a Messiah, a Redeemer was coming. 
and the, the disciples were reaping it. And so I think we need to be able to think like that more and, and how that applies to where we are now. This has been decades in the making. I think the 21st century for America has been, there's a lot of exciting things on. I'm not, and I'm not at all entirely pessimistic. Um, we have a lot of really neat opportunities at our doorstep. If we would only take advantage of them, opportunities with energy, medical technology, computing technology, um, the ability of people to interact with more cultures and see more places and visit more places and, you know, you know, all sorts of things that are very, very exciting. Um, and some of which we're taking advantage of, some we're not, but, but I think the 21st century has been disastrous politically for, for the American people. And which is why we've seen such a precipitous decline in the institutional confidence of millennials. And so, Yes, I think we do need that sort of vision, um, but it's going to take several generations to see the sorts of changes, if they come at all, that us three in this podcast would like to see. And I think that that has been the great fault of the conservative movement and far too many Christians. We have politicized our vision of what a free society is, where when you read the founders, politics was certainly important, but it was not the summum bonum of what a free society was. A summum bonum, the summum bonum of a free society was a virtuous people, a hardworking people, uh, a knowledgeable and educated people. The state of the country in that regard is disastrous right now. And so, but we've, we've kept fooling ourselves into thinking all ironically, all while we're saying it's all about the culture. It's all about, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say that. And yet, in the very next breath, they talk about this election being the most important election of our lifetimes. This election is the next portion. They, you know, it just goes on and on and on, as if uh, it is just about politics. And I, so you know, uh, I, I'd like to see that positive vision. I think it's a multi generational sort of thing. Well, I appreciate your perspective on the on the short sightedness, indeed, of what. Uh, what what we're dealing with. You have a great article on the stream, actually, that talks exactly to that point about how thinking from election to election is actually killing the conservative movement. And actually reading from a phrase that you have, you say, and that, among other things, is what too many conservatives have forgotten, vision, generational thinking, and long-term success. And that is a huge concern, not only shared by the three of us on this podcast, but I believe a growing number of Christian millennials who have pride in being Americans and have pride in in what this country has done for them, but have a deep concern about what the future will will look like. And so a question for for both of you, uh, I'll turn it over to, to Brian first, is what does the future of conservatism look like for millennials in this nation? What is it going to take for us to come back and to realize principles? I'm not talking about conservatism as political. I'm really talking about that smaller government. Let's get back to basics. Let's actually have a, a tangible impact rather than having decisions made for us. Uh, the first thing I would say is that the parties on both sides, if you just want to look at it from a party standpoint – Both of the parties have been horrible in terms of authenticity, in terms of trust, in terms of establishing relationship with millennials especially. And it's a no wonder that they don't trust either one of the parties or any large party platform and they're looking for something deeper. They're looking for something deeper in meaning. And if you're going to draw millennials to uh, a deep understanding of principles, conservative principles, not conservative politics but conservative principles – 
then there's got to be an authentic understanding relationship developed with those principles. And I think Josh would agree that until you have the real conversation, the conversation that respects millennials as if they are adults, the conversation that says we want to include you in the discussion and we care about what you have to say, the the conversation that addresses the tough issues that millennials want to address, whether it's political correctness or race in America, I think if you're going to establish conservative principles in this generation, I think you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to do it with authenticity. And the other thing I would say is that, yeah, it is about long-term generational thinking and vision. I think we could all agree on that. But you know, I'm a big fan of winning both the short and the long game. I would love to win this election and make at least a first down for principles if we can some way fashion a way to do that. And I would also like to win the long game and that conservatives have been horrible, unlike the liberal left in terms of one step at a time, you know, changing a culture towards a liberal ideology that's been tremendously destructive and dangerous over time and kind of kind of kind of a snake in the grass. But on it's it's our responsibility as conservatives, I think, to play that long game and to make those incremental advances, even if we don't agree with the top of the ticket of the current Congress. We've got to start making those inroads one step at a time. Josh, the same question for you. How do we encourage ownership of our country and of our future amongst our generation? Well, I'd agree with Brian that, you know, obviously you can't uh, arrive at a faraway place unless you take the intermediate steps. So the short term is is important. Um, I guess what I'm referring to is, is a is being able to accomplish short-term goals without losing uh, an awareness of their long-term effects, um, and I, so I think we're I think we're both in 100% agreement on that. I love I love Brian's articulation of the distinction between conservative principles and conservative politics. I think that's very good. Um, Arthur Brooks has an amazing book out called The Conservative Heart. And there's many things about it I love, but as far as this conversation is concerned, he talks about the need for conservative principles, as Brian said, to be articulated in 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 uh, moral terms, using a moral language. And this is something that we so often cede to the left. And so what's happened is that that I see frequently, and I think it's borne out by research, but but just by looking at the scene from a thirty thousand foot perspective. I see a lot of Christian millennials. I see two things happening. Um, they usually might have a very orthodox perspective theologically, and they probably are more intuitively conservative in their disposition politically and whatnot. But they have seen the behavior and the outlook of their elders and have been horrified by it in many respects. And so there's almost a counter reaction. That, that doesn't want to look like that. And so there's almost an emotional kowtowing to kind of a soft form of leftism. Um, I, I feel like I see this a lot on, on, the, on race issues. I see it a lot on the marriage issues and, and just and honestly, just basic morality. This is, this is a church-wide problem where it, it almost seems like American Christianity uh, has a hard time accepting that Christianity is composed of basic moral, tenants and duties. And it's, it's difficult to call oneself a Christian if, uh, if you aren't living up to at least a rock bottom form of basics. And so 
Um, as far as how to imbibe those principles, I have got many, many thoughts on those. And certainly in the remaining you know, few seconds or whatever, the podcast, it's, it's not enough. But, but I've told people for a long time, it starts at home. Uh, I think if you're stupid these days, it's your own fault. Uh, it's never been easier to get access to the great works of wisdom and learning of science, of literature, of poetry, of music, of everything. Uh, the internet is amazing. I go to sites like archive.org all the time to find books that haven't been published in a while. You know, I found William Wilberforce's letters, which are amazing to read through. Um, they've been published in about a hundred years, but, but if you're, if you're stupid, if you're uninformed on a fundamental level, it's your own fault. <laughs> uh, Coming from a guy who says summa bonum, like it's a real word. <laughs> I'm not every, I'm not asking for everybody to be scholars. That's not the point. But there is more information and more wisdom available for to the average human being than – like it's not even close in historical terms. And so if people want to you know, pontificate about politics and the country's going to hell, well, what are you doing at home? How are you raising your family? Are you reading with your kids? Are you spending time with your kids? Are you, are you serving your community with your kids? And I'd say this to a lot of millennials who are getting married. And, you know, you guys just recently got married. I hope you have kids. I think Josh wants us to have kids more than anyone else. (laughs) Uh, But what picture are people setting before their children? I, I, you guys are the beautiful children. So beautiful, smart and, and Jesus lovers. So, yeah. So anyway, there's a lot more thoughts on that. Um, one, one option I put in, in a stream column was charter schools In, in California, for example, charter schools can be set up as nonprofits. With all the money we spend on politics, which seems to have gotten a somewhat meager return as of late, what if, what if even $10 million a year was put into uh, nonprofit charter schools in California? There's a charter school called the John Adams Academy in Roseville, which is amazing. These 10 core values, which are you know about American values and hard work and things like that. They go to the classics and when they read the founders, they, they read the founders' words and they study Greek history, they read – Aristotle and Roman history, they read Cicero, etc. And so, you know, what if something like that could be replicated in, in all sorts of places and in the communities, the, you know, like black communities, Latino communities that are often underserved in this respect um, to, to teach children these values. I mean, there's so many options for people to do. You don't get the big, you know, dramatic uh, results right up front, which most people in this Twitterific generation want, but you lay the groundwork for long-term results. And so there are a lot of options if we're creative, and that's what I think we need to start getting. I think that's a great point, and I do appreciate uh, your perspective on the fact that if you if you are ill-informed, it is your own fault. And I don't think we really put that self um, responsibility on many people. We assume that the onus is on whether it be the politician or on the teacher or on the professor or the mentor to be the one providing information. But what I so often tell people when I'm speaking is that we can't rely on other generations for information uh, because we have Google for that. But we do need um, the help of others when it comes to interpretation and application. And that's really well, what Thomas Jefferson made a funny comment. He said, I pit- I'm, I'm paraphrasing it somewhat, but he said, I pity my fellow citizens who've read the newspapers and think they actually know what's gone on in their world. So and my point being, I find it far more edifying to read through some of the great classics read through some of the great spiritual classics, literary classics, political classics. And it's interesting. Thomas Jefferson said one of the roles of studying history was so that you would recognize 
how politicians and people with power are being manipulative uh, in your own time. You know, as C.S. Lewis said, a scholar has lived in many times, so he's more immune to the nonsense in his own time. And so I, I, I think reading classics is far more illuminating about what's going on in our culture and our country uh, than, than even, you know, you know, going to a whole bunch of sources that are around today. Yeah, very, very well said. Well, in closing, I'm going to turn it over to Brian with a closing question. And this is really for those listeners who are still in that morally hamstrung position trying to figure out what what do they do next? November 8th is coming really quickly and there's already early voting going on right now. So what would you say to a millennial Christian who still hasn't decided who to vote for? I would say this. I'd say that the conversation going on in your heart and in your head is a good one. If you're struggling over this decision, that's a good thing. If you're thinking about not showing up at the polls, think a second time. If you're thinking about writing in a third-party candidate, think about the ramifications. Think about the consequences of that. As your ballot gets put into the, the electronic ballot box, will it help or cut? Will it cut against or will it aid in the, in the pursuit of the principles that you so dearly hold to yourself? The other thing I would ask and say and kind of implore is that if there is a dream in your heart, if there is a desire to achieve something, to step into your purpose, to step into your call, look at that first and put it under the lens of your principles. So look at your calling. Look at your purpose. What do you want to achieve? What's the dream here in America? And look at your principles. And once you do those two things and, and letting kind of the personalities of the candidates and the parties fade and, and, and kind of step away for a moment and think about how can you achieve that dream in your lifetime and under which candidate and under in, in your decision, which of the candidates will more likely than not allow you to achieve your dream more effectively and sooner? Well said. Well said. Well, thank you both for taking the time to join me in the Up Next community, Josh Charles and Brian Boucher talking about what do we do as a generation, a millennial generation who follow Christ and want to see the future of this nation be brighter than ever. So thank you both for joining me and I hope to have you back on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.